Matthew 19, starting at verse 16, reads, Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Why ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones? The man asked. And Jesus replied, you must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Then Peter said to him, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? And Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to come together and worship you, Lord. We are so thankful to be able to do so. Uh, You're such a great and mighty God, and we just thank you. Thank you for the encounters that we have with you each and every day, and and just pray that uh, you continue to remind us of our encounters. Let us not go through the day without thinking of you and praising you. May you ever be on our lips, Lord, and in our heart. So, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive your word by your spirit, we just pray that um, you speak to us now. Use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. You may have a seat. So as we resume our series called Encounters with Jesus, we're in week three. I would like to encourage you to record... And whenever I say record, someone asks me if they have to make a video of themselves. Yeah, sure, why not? But what I meant is fill out one of these cards. Now, to be clear, my dear wife, um, bless her heart, she explained to me that uh, I need to clarify what I meant by these cards. If you fill out a card, you are not obligated to come up here. (laughs) Just to be clear, these cards, or and you can go online at renewmodesto.com and fill out a little card, and it, you write down your encounter, or you type out your encounter. That is for you. There's a little button online that says, would you like us to share it? That just means as we post things, not me, but when Ashley posts things, we'll post some stories. If you click no, we won't. If you click yes, that doesn't mean you come up here. Fear not. <laughs> All right. All right, so just to make that clear, if you click yes with trembling hands, you won't come up here. But I would like for whoever is willing 
to come up here. I know that it's scary just because I gab and I don't mind. I know that it is scary. So just to be clear, but I do encourage you to take one of these cards and record it. And not only record it, when I say record it, old-fashioned, write it or type it, not what, however you want to record it, but share it with someone. So with your spouse, with your siblings, with your children, with your life group, just share it with someone. Um, what I've noticed, and, I, and I'll keep saying this, is the more intentional I am to pay attention to my encounter with Jesus, I realize there's so much more encounters than I ever thought possible. So that's the whole hope for that. All right, so with that said, I think I clarified that. If you have any questions, see Sean Brunk. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, I'll, I'll try to make that clear. But does that make sense? This is, this is for you, not for me. This is for your relationship with Christ. This is just to help you, and, um, and it'll be great. So and, and uh, after the message here, I'm going to invite uh, Marty and Pat Cross to come up and share their encounter uh, with Jesus, and they're going to talk about a ministry that they're involved in on H Street. Um, so what we've seen is we've we've seen where Erica has shared her encounter with Jesus as she presented the gospel and listened to people who are so far removed from God. We also listened to the Benedicts, Marcus and Jody, and what Christ has done for them and revealed to them and taken care of them. And then this morning we're going to hear an encounter with Jesus from, like I said, Marty and Pat as they talk about a ministry. So as you see, it's all over the place. And then one one final thing, I think maybe I'll kick this till it's dead. It doesn't have to be a rag to riches story, just to be clear. I know I mentioned that, I think the first week we talked about that in Life Group, um, that sometimes we think that it has to be a, we're way down and out, drugs and alcohol and other, and then all of a sudden we're made new. Those are wonderful stories, but so is God providing a meal. So is all of it. And, and just to be clear, if you're concerned about not having a rag to riches story, perhaps the issue is... You feel like if you tell it, it's not good enough. It's not about you. It's about what Christ is doing in you. So that's all I got. Go home. Just kidding. All right. So this morning, uh, as we consider um, what we just read, we've the first two weeks were encounters where people had a positive response to their encounter with Jesus. They heard from Jesus. Jesus did something, and they responded to what he did what he asked them to do. Not all encounters with Jesus ends in a positive response, as we've read. I don't want to fool anyone and only read the good encounters. God is good. The encounter is good. But the way that we respond isn't always good, isn't always a positive response. And I keep using that word good because the rich young man used that word good. So as we consider this, we will consider that what encounters will look like and the rejection of Jesus Christ, which is heartbreaking. When we read the, through the account that Matthew had, I hope that it made you sad. Not to get an emotional rise out of you, but this should have broken your heart that Jesus was clear and the man said no. And really, uh, to, to simplify it, to oversimplify it, which I tried to do, I'm going to put the application right up front for you. Each encounter with Christ can fall into two main categories. One, an experience or an encounter with Christ causes you to walk closer with him. Or the second experience, you walk away unchanged and rejecting the encounter. 
And what I've been doing through this series is I've been pointing out the main people who has an encounter with Jesus, who've had an encounter with Jesus. And it always includes the disciples up to this point. In the past, we looked at who had the main encounter, the, the sub-encounters. But this one, there's only two people or people groups, the rich young ruler and the disciples. And we'll really take a look at the contrast between the two. The story of the rich young ruler is in all three synoptic gospels. Uh, it is left out of John's gospel because John is not a synoptic gospel. And if you're saying, well, what's a synoptic gospel? Here's the... Here's essentially what it means. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are summary gospels. They essentially are simply the summary of what happened. If you imagine, there's differences between those three and John. I won't spend all day boring you, but it's, it's incredible because usually what John does in his gospel is he writes it from a point of view of a third person like the other ones. Whereas the, the synoptic gospels, they do too, but it's more of an account of this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened. John writes his from this is what happened and here's the reflection of it. A couple of other things if you just want to consider it. If you look at John's gospel, he writes it as a very close friend of Jesus because he is. He describes the heart of Christ. He actually starts not from Jesus' birth, but Jesus' baptism. And there's many differences, but those are the main differences. If, if you're interested, we, we can talk about it sometime over lunch. And why, I find, and why I'm spending so much time introducing this thought is because this is, in the Synoptic Gospels, they really don't talk about emotion very much. In, in, during the Bible times, emotion, when you were recording, wasn't necessarily important for the story. John usually took care of that, but what we'll notice, and we've only read Matthew, I'll touch on the other ones, they mention how the man felt when he walked away. They also mention how Jesus felt when he looked at his disciples describing eternal life. There's something so powerful about this story, and it really took me a while to really consider what it is, and it's quite simple, which I tend to make things complicated. Jesus' heart is broken over this man. It's that simple. He's, he's brokenhearted over the man who essentially said no to Christ. So a few notes about this rich young man from the other gospels that we, we won't read. But we know this man is rich simply because we're told he's rich in what we read. We also know that he is a Pharisee because in Luke's account, he, he specifically asks, as he mentions here, eternal life. He, in Luke's account, he says, what happens after we die in eternal life? See, Pharisees are the Pharisees and Sadducees. One of the main differences is Pharisees believed in the afterlife, believed in heaven and hell, believed in something. The Sadducees didn't believe in the afterlife. They separate. They're just weird. Sum it up. But what we do know is that this man, this rich young man, was heavily involved in the temple and where he grew to power and fame, and he probably owned the land that the temple was built on. And since he was wealthy, he was a studier of scripture. He wasn't old enough to be a rabbi, but yet since he was young enough and a wealthy person... He had a lot more authority than perhaps he deserved. Um, you'll notice as you read throughout the Bible that wealthy people tend to get a leg up because they're wealthy. You kind of see that today. Sometimes 
uh, you could see that there can be shortcuts because there's the assumption that if someone is wealthy, that means they're doing something right and God is blessing them. Well, you work hard and you earn money. I know I'm, I'm not a socialist, by the way, but, but you'll see that over and over again throughout the Bible that you'll see that wealthy people are esteemed or countered. And why that's important is because if you remember two weeks ago when we talked about the blind man, when he was blind, the disciples asked, who sinned, that man in the womb or his parents? So there was a, a direct correlation that if you were wealthy, it's because God has blessed you and you were good. You were a good person. If you were poor, you were a bad person person. And this is what is bringing to light. You don't have to turn there, but in Luke's account in chapter 18, he calls them the ruler of the synagogue. And that's important too, again, because a young person wasn't allowed to be the ruler of the synagogue. So there was a lot of holes in this. And, and as we consider this rich young ruler, and as he's coming to Christ, if we go to Mark 10, you don't have to go there, but he's a respectable young man and he's humble. Notice that he runs up in Mark. He runs up here in Matthew's account. He doesn't say that he ran up, but in Mark's account, he runs up and he bows down to Jesus and he calls him rabbi or teacher. In the old tradition, it was not looked upon positive for a man to run or bow to anyone. Anytime that you saw that, there was a change in the culture. What's the, just off the top of your mind, what's the most famous picture that you see in the Bible of someone running to someone? The prodigal son. The dad who's rich runs to his son. Perhaps another one is when the disciples find out that Jesus is not in the tomb, what do they do? They run to the tomb. They break social norms to run to something to check it out. And the, re the real reason why is running was for children, and the older you got, the slower you walked, the more prestigious you were. So this man who is full of prestige comes and he runs and he bows down to Jesus. And he lays down. And all of the traditions that he knows, he comes to Jesus with this question, and that's where... We'll pick up the story. So let's consider what took place. In verse 16, someone, this rich young man, the young, rich young ruler, according to Luke, comes to Jesus. He throws himself down. He asks the question, teacher, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? Do you already see the problem with his question? What good deeds? What must I do? What is my performance? How do I get an A plus? Anyone in here um, is a good student? No? That, thank you in the back. All right. That answers a lot of questions. <laughs> That's kidding. Well, has anyone ever got a 99% on the test and was so mad that you missed one? Okay. Now, now we have the smart people. Has anyone went to the teacher and asked for extra credit so they can get over 100%? Yep. I'm not talking to those who've got 55% and said, what can I do to pass so I can graduate? There's plenty of us in here. But, but this is what he's asking to do. What must I do? What extra can I do? What deed must I do? What works base do? What do I have to do? What works do I have to do to be saved? Essentially, how good of a person do I have to be? 
And if we're honest, I think everyone struggles with this question at some point in their life. I mentioned when we were in Israel, and, and one of the things that stood out to me, again, was how um, part of the hang-up with the Jewish people who do not believe in Jesus Christ as their Messiah is they can't get over the fact that someone would die for someone else. Why would anyone do something for someone else? I have to earn my own way. And I think perhaps all of us in some form can grow up and think, man, I need to do better. I didn't pray enough this week. That's why bad things are happening. That's why there's a dip in the finances. That was going circling back to the rich being wealthy in the Bible and how, oh, God's clearly blessed you with wealth because of your performance. No, he could have just blessed you. But he's asking, what good deed must I do? What do I need to do? And essentially, when you are asking, what more can I do? What kind of workspace can I do? I mean, if you ask the question, Explosion Evangelism and other people who do a lot of outreach and, and street preaching, ask, one of the top questions is, is, when you die, what do you think is going to happen to you? And the majority of the question is, is well, I'll get to nowhere or I'll just be dead. But the more popular one is, I hope that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I hope that I have enough tally marks on the good side versus the bad side. And essentially, this is what the rich young man is doing. He's running to a rabbi, a famous rabbi now at this point, And he says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? If you remember from last week, whenever I mentioned that Jesus has asked a ton of questions, but he only answers three directly, this is not one of the questions he asks directly. He asks him a question in response. Verse 17, he says, why ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good, but to answer your question, if you want to receive, if you want to receive, not do good deeds, but if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. He starts with the Old Testament, but before that he says, what is good? There is only one who is good, the one, or perhaps in some translation, only God is good. God the Father is good. And a side note, this verse right here, verse 17, Matthew 19, verse 17, is what other faiths, cults, atheists use to say, see, Jesus said he's not God. See right here? It says right there, especially the Muslim faith, they say, they point to this scripture and say, see, Jesus is only a prophet or a good person. But they take it out of context because what is happening here is that is correct. Only God is good. In Romans, we read about how we fall short of the glory of God. No one can claim to be good, on and on and on. But what he's doing here is he's answering the question to what the rich young man believes. The rich young man believes that he's a rabbi. He doesn't believe that he's God. So he establishes, he's already working through what a deed is, what good deeds are. Well, what do you mean good deeds? Only God is good. But to answer your question... Since you are a Jewish man, since you are a Pharisee, you must keep all of the commandments. Let's start there. Now that we live in the time that we, we do, post Jesus' death and resurrection with the, and with the filling of the Holy Spirit, sometimes we throw out the commandments and the rules, not that we don't follow them, but we don't 
hold them to a value. But again, the commandments and rules are just a mirror to reflect to show that we've fallen short. So he challenges him first by who, what is good, who is good. God is good. Okay, so no good deeds can get you in because only God's deed can do that. And we'll see how that relates here in a minute. And he says, but if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. And then a very great question by the man, well, which one? Well, which ones? One through 10, the big ones, or the 712 that we added as Jewish people? That's essentially what he's asking. And actually, in his question, what I think he's asking, what I'm assuming he's asking, is he said, there's a lot of them, but which ones are the most important ones? Because, again, if it's, if it's based on your works to get into heaven, which it's not, just to be clear, but if it's based on works, you prioritize which ones are the most important ones. Well, as long as I'm better in this area, then I, you know. So he's asking which ones are important, and here's Jesus' reply. He starts quoting the Ten Commandments. You must not murder. Check. Never killed anybody. I'm good. No murder. You must not commit adultery. Check. He may not have been married. We don't know. You must not steal. Check. You must not testify falsely. Check. Honor your father and mother. Check. Love your neighbor as yourself. Side note, that's not a Ten Commandment. See how Jesus like slow rolled what his commandment is in there? The man missed it though. Because this is what he says, I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? He knows that there's more. He's seeking for the truth. And each and every one of us, we have this, as Dallas Willard said, pretty good name. He says, in each one of us, there's a hole, the shape of God in our hearts that can only be filled by God. But we try to fill it with other things. A lot of us, it's getting the 99% on our test and saying, what must I do to get 105%? What else must we do? I have a little chart here, I think, of the Ten Commandments. I just wanted to point something out to you. If you notice in the Ten Commandments, the last six commandments relate to how we should treat other people. Honor your father and mother, number five at the bottom left there. Do not murder. Keep your marriage promises. Don't commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not want things that belong to others. As you could tell, that's from the children's curriculum. But you notice that? But then the first four is the commandments as it relates to our relationship to God. What's interesting is what did Jesus ask him that he kept? the ones related to other people. I would suggest the last six are a lot easier to keep than the first four. Maybe number five. I don't know if I honor my mother very well all the time, but we'll go number five. I've never murdered. I've, I've never committed adultery. Did not steal, not lie. I mean, we can go through this. Maybe 10, sometimes I want what you want. Or more, I want what you want and think that you don't deserve it, but I do. That's really what it's saying, if we're honest. But mostly we can keep those ones, right? Wouldn't you agree? And also, those are more of the public display of keeping the commandments. The four are the ones that we hide in secret. 
Because if I commit murder, I'm not very clever. I won't get away. You'll catch me. But if I have idols, it's real easy for me to hide it from you. And notice that's what Jesus is doing here. He gives, he lists out the last few ones to the man. He says, have you kept those ones, at least those ones? And he says, oh, yeah. And, and, and either, there's two possibilities. Either the man knows that there's something more, which I believe he does, but he also knows that there's some more of the commandments. So in verse 20, I've obeyed all those commandments that you listed off, except not love your neighbor as yourself, but never mind. Maybe Jesus is confused and he's adding. What else must I do? There's something else that's missing from this list, because I've already done it. I've already performed well, but yet there's still a hole in my heart. And I would suggest that anyone here who has tried to work for their salvation never feels like they've met the mark, because you haven't, because I haven't, because it's not based on our performance. It's totally, completely based on what Christ has done and our belief in him as our Lord and Savior. So that's why when you go to the teacher, and I'll keep using this illustration until it's dead, when you go to your teacher and you say, I got 99% and I really want to beat my brother or my friend, what extra credit can I do? Then you do it, and then you feel good for a moment, but you know, oh, there's another test. I need to do better. There's more for me to do. We all ask, what else must we do if it's all based on our works? Because deep down inside, Christ has put that God-shaped hole in our heart that he can only fill. Then, for some of us, we can get to the point where we realize our performance isn't good enough, but we stop there and we give up, and we don't allow Christ to come into our life. Or we do accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, but all we're trying to do is please him and please him and please him. So his response to, what else must I do? And this is what Jesus tells him. Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect... Or, if you want to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Just a note, when Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, or if you want to be complete, it's the word teleso, telesi, which means to be brought to an end. So if you want to be brought to an end of yourself, but actually a better translation is if you want to say it is finished, wait a minute, who said that? Christ did on the cross. He said the perfect tense. See, Hebrew is weird. They have all these words and root words, and then they have the perfect form of the word that we branch it out. So, when Jesus Christ was on the cross and he said, it is finished, it's the perfect form of being perfect. So, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, telehi, telesai, however you want to pronounce it, and he says, it is finished, and then he gives up his life, he's stating that it is finished. So, what Jesus is telling him here, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be like Christ, if you want to say that it is finished, but not in a perfect form, go and sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. You notice, if you can go back to that chart, to the Ten Commandments here, 
you notice that, have no other gods besides me. Worship only God. Don't misuse the name of God. Keep this Sabbath day holy. But you must have no other gods. Essentially what Jesus is doing is he is going to him and saying, have you kept the first two commandments? But instead of saying that, instead of Jesus saying, well, have you kept the first couple of commandments? Do you have any idols? He asks him, he points out his idols. See, our encounter with Jesus, the more and more, is God is faithful to reveal what is important to us over him. He will slowly and in his perfect timing reveal to us what is idols. Now, I don't know anyone in here who has a little statue of something that you worship. But I do know that each and every one of us struggles with something that we put in front of God. And here's the test. If you've ever said, I cannot live without, and it's not God, it could be an idol. If you hold on to something so tightly that if God was to take it away, you would think your life was over, including your life, that would be an idol. For this man, it was his possession. He cared more about his possession than God. Now, a lot of people use this, Matthew 19, to first, like I mentioned, point that Jesus is not God, which he is. The second thing they do is people use verse 21 to preach a poverty gospel. You heard a prosperity gospel. If you do all this, then God will bless you. Send me a ton of money and I'll hoot and then you'll double it up. All those crazy people. But then also there's this poverty gospel. Well, you must give up everything and live in rags and then that will show you that you're holy. See, the problem with both of those false gospels, which aren't gospels at all, it's all performance-based. Either you pray enough, you do enough, and you will be blessed more, or you give up everything, and then you will be blessed more. That's not what Christ is doing. This is not a call to poverty. This is a call to give up an idol. So this rich young ruler has an encounter with Christ where he is faced with what he worships more than God. And Jesus tells him exactly what it is. And not only to give it up, because if you give it up, that's great. But then he says, then come follow me. Now, just take a pause here. And, and, and I like to consider what's going on with the, the, the disciples and the other people. And, and at least I try to put myself in their shoes. And, and, and the encounter that starts taking place with the disciples, I can only imagine that when this rich young ruler comes and throws himself at Jesus' feet, that the other disciples are looking at this guy and thinking, this guy's going to replace us. I would imagine that Peter and Andrew, since Andrew's Peter's brother, leans over and says, it looks like we got a new leader, buddy. I mean, how could you not? Isn't this the prototype person that you want to join your workforce, your church, your life group? Someone who is young and intelligent, rich, full of humility, that comes and isn't that who you want to disciple? Isn't that who you want to be around? 
I just imagine that the disciples, again, are thinking, we're replaced. We're just fishermen, and this guy's rich, and, he's, and he can have a lot of influence. But yet, then they watch Jesus tell them to take away what they find value. See, while this encounter is taking place with this young, rich ruler, it's also taking place in the disciples. Again, it's affirming again what is important to Christ. It's your heart. And then verse 22. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad. For he had many possessions. And in the English translation, I don't think it does it justice. Perhaps I I think in the King James, it says he was downcast. It says he was heartbroken. Uh, Another translation is he felt worthless. It's interesting. I really like that translation, he felt worthless. He, so I'm going to use that word. But when the young man heard this, he went away feeling worthless because he had many possessions. Have you ever had so much but you felt like you had nothing? Had you had so many relationships but you didn't feel close to anyone? That's the emptiness that Christ is working through in his disciples and in this man. He's essentially asking, what is more valuable to you than God. Again, what is it that you cannot live without? Yesterday we had Thais's celebration of life. It was a wonderful time um, just celebrating her and her relationship with Jesus. And it's wonderful. And one of the things that I always consider when I do a celebration of life or a funeral, and I think I made a distinction yesterday that there's a difference between a celebration of life and a funeral. Celebration of life is celebrating someone who had life in Christ. A funeral is someone who doesn't. That's, that's the top three hardest things to do as a pastor for me is to do a funeral for someone who doesn't believe in Christ. It's heartbreaking. But as I was considering that, I was so very thankful that with the family and with the friends that were here um, just celebrating her life and the other funerals where there's celebration of life. It's knowing that they have life with Christ, life forever. When the, when the rich young person, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? Christ, Christ is the answer, and that's what Jesus is sharing. And then at these different funerals, when, when it's not a celebration of life, almost every time, you'll hear family members saying, I don't know if I can live without that person. I don't know what it will be like because it's so finite and it's finished for them. So in this contrast, as this man walks away, he feels like he doesn't have anything because he has so much that he's not willing to give up for Christ. Because I mean, think of his argument. But Jesus, do you know how much I have? Do you know the, how important I am? Do you know how many people depend on what I have? But yet Christ asked him to give up what is most important to put God on his throne. So as he turns, he turns in verse 23, then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And there's, there's the practical meaning of that, which is pretty obvious. 
If you imagine if I had a camel and a needle, you'd, you'd see the obvious. But there's also a place, there was a, a small entrance where people who rode camels would have to get off and walk. And they called it the eye of the needle. So not only is it a practical and a spiritual meeting, but they also know, oh yeah, whenever we do see people, they have to leave their camels or they have to walk sideways into, to pass through because the camel can't fit. Christ is so good when he's sharing a story to not only touch the heart, but to touch the physical part. Because people like me, I, I need illustrations. That's why I use them. Perhaps it's all the years teaching children, but he's taking care of that. He's explaining them to, I tell you the truth. It is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom. And you could read this. It's hard for anyone to give up something to follow Christ. When you follow Christ, there is always a cost. Christ has done all the work, but yet when you accept him, it's a free gift. But what it costs you is growing in him. So this morning, as you considered, have you considered the cost of following Christ? If you could write down what it is or what you had to give up in order to follow Christ, have you done it? I would suggest it's perhaps a little bit easier being here in in America Uh, because we don't necessarily get alienated by our families if we do. Maybe some of you have. I think some of you had, and I'm not trying to take that away. But in the Middle East, if someone is to leave another faith, like a Muslim faith, they are totally disowned and perhaps killed. But what does it cost you? What is it that God is asking you to give up? What is it that you place over God? So he explains this a little bit more because the disciples, in verse 25, the disciples were astonished, as they should be, and they asked a great question. Then who in the world can be saved? Who can be saved? And then Jesus looked at them intently. Another translation is intimately with great concern and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. You can't work for it, guys. You're not good enough. But with God, everything is possible. And that is whenever he is now again pointing to himself that he is God, that he is the son, God's son. Then Peter, good old Peter, he's probably, he probably wiped his brow thinking, man, that guy's not replacing me. I'm still here. And then he said to him, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? What a question. So what do we get exactly? Because um, we're following you and we've had to leave things. We've had to leave family. Peter at this point probably hasn't seen his wife in months. They left family. They left their careers. They left everything. And although their career, just as simple fishermen, wasn't as prestigious as whatever, however this man had his wealth, they still gave up everything. And Peter asked what we all ask, well, what will we get? And then Jesus replied, I assure you, in verse 20, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has given up 
houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and most importantly will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Just to point out in verse 28, it says the son of man. Jesus refers to him his self as the son of man, not the son of God. And the reason why is when someone referred to being the son of God, that was a term that was thrown around easily. If you followed Zeus, you would say, I am the son of Zeus. You would be identified by the God that you followed because it also identified your culture and your race and what people group. But for Jesus to say that he is the son of man, people would have taken notice Because he is saying here, I am the perfect Adam. I am the perfect man. And he's also saying this for the Jewish um, believers because they, they nearly worshiped Moses and they nearly worshiped Abraham. And Jesus Christ is the perfect Abraham, the perfect God. Perfect Moses. So when he says, I am the son of man, what he is essentially saying is, I am here save all mankind. And I will sit on the throne and I will bring you with me. And then those of you who are doing your uh, revelation studies will, if you, I don't think you've gotten there, but you'll talk about your 12 thrones and, and the tribes of Israel and all that that means. But essentially when Peter says, well, what will we get? You'll get eternal life and don't worry about what you leave behind. Essentially what he's saying is stop trying to put something else in it. In front of me, I will take care of you. And that's been my experience personally. Every time that I have finally surrendered whatever it is that I'm holding so tightly to God and I give it over to the Lord and not try to take it back and not try to put something else in front of him, I am blessed. Not because I've gotten more things, received more things, I've become richer monetarily. It's simply because God is where he should be. And when God is where he should be, that's where you can worship him. And that's where you see him coming and doing the work in your life. And that's where you can write down your encounter and say, yes, here I am and I'll follow you. So as we, as we consider this, our encounters with Jesus, I, I would suggest that constantly as we face our encounters with Jesus, we'll have a response. We can have a response. Now, just quickly, just real quick, the first two encounters that we talked about, the blind man. Can you imagine if the blind man act like the man, the rich ruler? Remember Jesus spit on the ground, put mud in his eyes, and he said, go wash in the pool of Salome. And, and if that blind man was like this rich guy and said, nope, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I don't like being blind and poor, but at least I know what I'm getting myself into. He'd walk around not only with mud in his eyes, but he would still be blind. What about last week, the lady at the well? She she sits down, has this whole dialogue, and, and and she says no to Jesus. She would pick up the water jar. She would go back to town with her water and not tell anyone about Christ. So we all have a response to, a responsibility to respond to our encounters with Christ. So as we consider this, what our encounters are. This is a great representation of two things. It's important that we know where we stand with Christ, that we don't earn our salvation, that he's taken care of all of the work. We simply need to believe and obey him and follow after him, believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. 
Stop trying to go for the 110% on your extra credit. You can't do it. And the other one is, when we surrender our life, it's so much richer for Christ. So much that we have. What we try to fill our hearts in. And finally, one, one last thing that Dallas Willard mentioned as he, as he was considering our disciplines and our religiousness and how to follow Christ and what that looks like and, 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 and trying to walk through, okay, I want to follow Christ. I, I want to do the right thing. And um, for some of us, I, really, as, as, at least for me, the longer that I walk with Christ, the more that I get down on myself when I sin, but actually I'm forgetting who I am in Christ. And this is what Dallas Willard said. One of the signs of a healthy use of religion or discipline is, how do you feel when you don't do them? If you feel guilty, you need to rethink it. And he goes on to explain, even in his walk with Christ, and he was a very old man when he wrote this, while he was in his walk with Christ, the older he got, he found that his religiousness, his disciplines became his idol. Because he essentially was saying, he would go on to explain, I came and I followed Christ with his free gift, but then I realized I was still trying to perform for him like a monkey. Let us not be monkeys. So with that, I would like to invite the crosses, cross eyes, you guys to come up and uh, share your encounter with Jesus and the ministry that you are involved in. four years we have been working with a, a ministry that's run by Tony Gianosa called H Street Ministries and uh, it, it was it's interesting when we first was there it was primarily to give people a meal um, we, we serve a meal on Tuesday and Thursday evening and then we give out groceries on Wednesday and something happened about a year ago that when we finally got to meet inside again after COVID, uh, we have a core group that's been coming and finally started bringing others. And, and it's interesting because they refer to it as church because we, we have a worship service, uh, we have a message, and then we have a meal. And they, don't, they no longer refer to it as, as coming for dinner. They, they refer to it as um, coming for church. Now, we, we primarily, we actually serve both homeless and people that are on the fringe. We have, a, we have several families that it just helps them out to come get a meal. It's, it's about a week's worth of groceries when they come get the bag. So uh, we're really ministering to both of those groups. It's over by, um, what is it, Modesto High? I think it is over there uh, on H Street. And uh, the, so... That's what the core of the ministry is. We, we may get to where we do. We actually have another section where they make meals that another group comes and actually gets and takes them to different areas, uh, whether it's the homeless encampments or others. About 100 meals, I think, every of, of those two days, um, they, they end up taking those meals out too. And uh, so 
that's that's essentially what the ministry is about. Pat's going to talk to you about uh, a couple of really interesting uh, things that have happened. So um, when we came to this ministry, as Marty said, um, it was essentially just like we were feeding them and and trying to meet needs, but mostly it was just feeding them. And God evolved it over the course of COVID. Um, we got to come in and like revamp the whole building. So when we first started, the building was a complete disaster. Like it was, I don't know how long it had been since it had been thoroughly cleaned and painted. So over COVID, because we couldn't meet, we spent our days going down and painting and refurbishing and making it look like a, it does, it looks like a little church building. And um, that, I think, was one of the things that helped the people kind of associate more. But then the other thing is, is I have a heart for the people. So while everybody would be serving food, I go sit down at the table and I want to talk to them. I'm like, what's your story? Tell me what's going on. I've had the opportunity to lead a couple of different people to the Lord. It, there's nothing more rewarding than that than to have one of these, these women who's homeless. She comes up. And she's asking me for clothes, but then she stops and she goes, how can I get Jesus? I want Jesus. And so I got to sit down on the steps of the stage and lead her to the Lord. So that's what our really goal is, is to see these lives changed. Um, so one of the things we're doing right now, and we're asking, and we'd ask Pastor Dallas if we could do, and so we're pro going to promote it, and that is a warm clothing drive. Um, we are completely out of clothes at our place and during the summer they don't ask for a lot but during the winter they do like we regularly every they're want they need coats they need you got to understand guys these people live on the street their things get taken so they could ask the same person could ask me for a coat every week because their things get stolen and, and I wish we had the time to really go into and describe to you the dynamics of the homeless community because I think there's so many misnomers about what it is to be homeless. And from working there, I have learned so much, you know. And for me, my heart says, you know, Jesus said, whatever you do for these, you've done for me. So I can't pass. I don't just limit my time to 8th Street. I am talking to homeless people everywhere. When I'm out shopping, whatever. I am always stopping. I give away our food. Well knows we've gone to Olive Garden and got the extra meal and he's all excited because he's going to have it for lunch and then we walk out the door and there's a homeless person I'm like sorry <laughs> and so anyway I, I don't want to be lengthy I just do want to tell you one really quick story though about the impact that it has that this ministry has on these people and that is we had a, a man his name's John when we first started there about four years ago this guy was about as as rough around the edges as you could get. He would talk during the message. He would get up and walk around during worship. He would say things to them while they were on the stage, like he would argue with them. And he just, he'd get mad at the drop of a hat and leave and not come back for a couple weeks. And he just was so rough, you know. But God started doing something in him. And we noticed that, you know, little by little, he was different. He actually had an encounter with me where he, um, it was a, totally a misunderstanding. He thought my husband was saying something negative about him, but actually my husband was saying something good about him. Because one of the things that we do when you see those boxes of food, on the top of those boxes of food, there's a verse. Every month we put a verse. 
If you memorize, if they get up and memorize that verse and say it, they get a gift card to the dollar store. And, you know, when we started four years ago, maybe one or two people would say that verse. Now we have at least five, ten people, and the best part is the kids. We've got kids that are just, like, memorizing those verses like that. They're taking the Word of God with them wherever they go, and that's awesome. But this guy, he... Um, he memorized the verse, and he said it perfectly. And my husband had just made a comment to who he was standing next to, but kind of pointed his way. The guy took it wrong. He left mad. Did not come back for a while. Through the course of that time, my husband, we, he couldn't figure it out. He was upset at him, and he knew, but he couldn't figure it out. And then finally, he put it all together that he must have saw that from across the room and mistook what he was doing. So my husband went to him and apologized and said, look, I'm really sorry. I think I hurt you and offended you. I did not mean to. Um, and the man just dropped his head. And he goes, I have to apologize. He goes, I should not have taken that like that. Well, lo and behold, over time, John got saved. He came to know the Lord. And if you saw him now, it's amazing. He got up and gave us a message like, he asked if he could get up and give a message, and we're like, okay, sure. And he got up, and rough and gruff as you can be. I mean, off-color jokes, all of this is going on. But mid, midway through, he stops, and he pulls out this package of cigarette rolls. And he says, who knows what the red line on here means? And we're like, I have no idea. <laughs> and I'm just in there. But the people in that room knew because that's, that's the clientele. And they started shouting out, it means you're at the end. It means you only have a few left. And he goes, that's right. He goes, don't you wish you had a red line on your, on your body, on your life, on your soul, so that you would know when you're almost going to die so you could make it right with God? He goes, but you don't. He goes, you guys need to close the gap today. And he walks off the stick. <laughs> going, what? But this is what God does. This is how God changes people. And that's what our ministry does. So I get, I, we could use volunteers. We have some flyers out on the table. We'll be out there. You can talk to us about it. We can use volunteers, and we definitely can use warm clothes. Because I like to clap. So let's pray. God, thank you for... Uh, just this ministry that we heard uh, from Pat and Marty, Lord, and uh, for the H Street ministry, thank you for their lives, that they've just totally invested in them. We just pray that you uh, continue to encourage them as they minister uh, to the people over there, to the homeless and those who are on the fringe, Lord. We pray that uh, they get the volunteers they need, the food that they need, um, for the coats and the warm clothes, Lord, and just pray that you continue to have encounters with them as they have encounters with people to present the gospel. So will you bless them and their time, and just thank you for ministries uh, of people serving one another. We thank you. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you. All right, so we are going to uh, have a couple more songs, and we are going to prepare to receive communion. You're welcome to receive communion with us if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. I'll pray for us once more. God, thank you again um, that we don't have to earn our salvation. And will you help us not try to? Even, even for us who believe in your son and we know we don't earn it, will you forgive us when we still try to work to please you? 
We know that we need to serve you. We know that we need to follow your commands. We know we need to die to self. We know we need to be more like you. But that's because we love you, not because we're trying to earn something. So, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, we reveal to us, one, anything that we put over you, any, anything that is an idol in our hearts. And as we were reminded today that it's so easy to have a quiet idol that no one knows about except for you and ourselves. And, Lord, if there's anything that we continue just to struggle with in workspace faith, we just reveal that to us, Lord. We thank you for your love. We're excited to continue to worship you now through song. In Christ's name, amen.